0: Hello, Georgia, and hello, Metro Augusta. This is Janice Allen Jackson welcoming you to the March 29th edition of Local Matters, a show designed to make you a more confident voter and a more engaged citizen. As always, today's show is brought to you as a service of my consulting firm, and that is Janice Allen Jackson and Associates, where we proudly provide services to local government and nonprofit organizations. If you have not already, please follow the Local Matters Podcast of Georgia on Facebook. There, we feature announcements about various community events. We have news articles on various things that involve local government and the significance of it. And it is all there to educate, edify, and engage you. Today, our guest is Dr. Jewel Jones Faison. She is another a career educator and somebody who is here in our occasional series on public education. Enjoy. Local Matters family, today we have someone coming to us uh, from outside the Metro Augusta area, but someone who is very much a Georgian and very much an expert on the subject of education is Dr. Jewel Faison. Uh, Dr. Faison, welcome to Local Matters. Thank you, um,
1: Ms. Allen Jackson. I, it is my pleasure to be here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Thank you so much. I'm glad that you're here. Um, let's start off as we typically do, and that is by asking our guests to trace the arc of their careers uh, so that our listeners can get a little bit more familiar with who you are and your background.
1: Okay, Janice. Thank you. Uh, I'm actually a career changer and very few people know that. Uh, I started my career as a medical social worker and that was a great job for me. My grandmother, uh, who I'm name actor, Jewel heal used to have asthma attacks at night. And so we would go to Grady Hospital every night so she could get on the breathing machine. This is around the 1964-69 era. Uh, and as a child, I wanted to give back to Grady Hospital because they oh, were so good to me. But in my heart of hearts, I always wanted to be a teacher. Uh, I'd play school from the time that I got home from school every day, writing on my mother's walls so much so that they uh, made me a big uh, bullet uh, blackboard, uh, finally, so that I could stop writing on the walls. It didn't stop me, but at any rate. Uh, However, uh, during that time, during the time that I went to college, my mother was insistent that since I was kind of somewhat of a bright child, that I become a doctor or a nurse, because that was the big push in the Black community at that time. But Dr. Henry C. McBay, my organic chemistry lab class, turned my college chemistry pre-med career into a pipe dream Mm -hmm. and a quick change of major from chemistry pre-med to sociology Because I couldn't get into those coveted education courses and graduate in four years. So I'm a career changer. However, my passion and compassion for getting a job done, even as a social worker, caused me to bring people home. And my husband said, "Uh uh-uh, don't bring another person home. Find you another career. And so I got into teaching that way. So I started my teaching career in a neighborhood school in Atlanta Public Schools, IP Reynolds Elementary School, under what I call a real Black principal, Mrs. B. Quarterman. And I use the term, <clears throat> excuse me, real Black principal. And I name her, <clears throat> excuse me, intentionally, because I now understand so many things about our ancestor educators that I experienced, but I didn't really understand at the time but I started my career in education as a substitute teacher. Eventually that principal was moved to the west side of town and like those real black principals did back in the day, she saw that teacher in me. So she took me with her to the other side of town. And I was then requested by parents to remain at the school and to be a permanent teacher. And of course that was a whole um, new career for me. And Uh, I was was just naturally a good teacher, and I took all these extra education courses as a transient student at Georgia State and taught second through sixth grades um, in Atlanta public schools until I received my first promotion in 1990 to research and evaluation. Uh, That was the department in the school system that was considered the hub of Atlanta public schools at the time. I was always the youngest and had the least seniority in my uh, career uh, at once I got promoted. Uh, So every time we get a new superintendent, um, I would have to be cut and moved somewhere else. But while I was in research and evaluation, Dr. Minnie Ruffin and others would always admonish me about the importance of knowing the history of education for Black children. And Dr. uh, Barbara Whitaker, I call these people's names Uh, Ms. Jackson, because to me, it's important to recognize the ancestors and those in the past who understood what I have just come as a 66-year-old to understand uh, in education. But nevertheless, Dr. Barbara uh, Whittaker, a demanding feisty assistant superintendent, took me under her wings. And as I sheepishly learned to write grants for her summer program and all that other stuff, Uh, As a new kid on the block, I was then cut and went back to the school, became a curriculum specialist, instructional specialist, assistant principal, building administrator, staff developer. Then I had a job where I didn't have a title, actually, but I was writing the proposal for Next Generation School Project, which ended up being what's now known as Centennial Park, that whole area of Atlanta uh, when we were preparing for the 1996 Olympics. But I left uh, Atlanta Public Schools before the Olympics and before that to see before seeing the fruition of all of that in 1995 and became assistant superintendent of elementary schools in Doherty County, uh, South Georgia, different part of state, different opportunity, um, did that for a number of years and um, had a small stint with the state department's statewide reading initiative and then became superintendent. Superintendent in perhaps one of the smallest and poorest school districts in the state of Georgia, uh, and was recognized by the uh, state superintendent Kathy Cox for turning achievement around in a short amount of time. Walked off the job. Well, that's a whole nother conversation. And opened my own metacognitive coaching firm and staff development firm, which turned into a school because students were receiving the metacognitive coaching and were achieving so well until parents asked me to start a school. And that's when I started a school for children. Wonderful little school, best work I ever did in my uh, entire career, to be honest. But in 2012, as you know, I had a massive brain aneurysm and all of my uh, retirement was invested in that school. Uh, Unlike the one of your guests talked about title one being a waste um it helped a lot of poor children in my school because title one of course was uh the result of uh getting funds to help poor children and so they didn't only help poor children in public schools but in private schools as well and having been a superintendent i knew that that was available and so we were able to help a lot of a number of children a school for children closed in 2012 and i then Uh, Open Constructs and Concepts International, which is the the metacognitive coaching firm, et cetera, in the school. So that's where I am. That's that's what I'm doing now and uh, enjoying being a a generalist, uh, which is a consultant that can do just about anything in education you need me to do.
0: (laughs) That is excellent. Um, And I like to establish that for our listeners just so. People know that the folks that I'm bringing to them have some credibility in the subject matter in which I have asked them to speak. So thanks so much for sharing that background. And there are a lot of questions that can come from that. But the the very first question I want to ask is, um, and you explained some of why you became an educator. But I tell you what, a couple of uh, weeks ago, I was in an elementary school because of a separate project I was working on, and um, I saw the kids running around there, and I thought about what my mother used to say. My mother was a career educator as well, and she was so disappointed that I did not go into the field of education, and I was sitting there looking around at those children. I was like, "Uh, I don't think I could do this. (laughs) This is just not for me. And, and, you know, you talked about how you got into it. I mean, why do you think the re and you also talked about the the real black principle. Uh, So why is it that those people, yourself included, Mm -hmm. um, could have such a passion for it and chose to do it and do it well? And has that dynamic changed over the years? Wow.
1: Wow. Actually, uh, it's strange that you would ask that question because um, I think I was called to do it. And I know a lot of people uh, that that term or that terminology around uh, here and there, but I really believe I was called to be an educator. Uh, Like I said, if you pay attention to children when they're very, very young, they will show you in no uncertain terms who they are. Um, And it's up to parents to uh, help develop that. Uh, I was, like I said, I was playing school before I went to school. That was what was so interesting. So much so until I wrote on my mother's walls all the time. And uh, so I really think I was called to be an educator. Now, I do believe that you can be trained to be an educator too, if you have the heart for it. Uh, So I believe that people are either called or they see the need and really uh, have a passion or develop a passion. And then the training to become an uh, excellent educator. So that's that's how I got there.
0: <laughs> yes, and you know, you you got there because of a passion. If I think on my mother, she got there. Because at the time, everybody has to understand, my mother was born in 1924. So the options were so limited for African-American women. She knew that she wanted to go to college, but she felt like she only had two choices, basically be a teacher or be a nurse. That's right. (laughs) Those were really the only choices available to her at that time. But nonetheless, she took it on with vigor vigor and with passion. Um, As we think about how... Schools have changed and evolved uh, since the time, and obviously changed a lot since you know my mother started teaching in 1948. Um, you start teaching in the 80s? That's correct. Is that about right? Yes. Um, obviously, schools have evolved yeah. uh, substantially over that time period. Um, are the evolutions good or bad?
1: Well, uh, the the evolutions are really uh, just about the same. Uh, you also asked me um, how have or have I uh, seen or felt any differences in within myself uh, over the course of the years, and I think it was one day um, mm-hmm. that I called you because I really needed a an unbiased, non educator, non family member, but somebody close enough that would know my heart to uh, work out some things because I was so disappointed in what I was seeing in education and what I knew. And after just kind of spilling my guts, um, I was thinking that, you know, none of this is working. None of it is right. Uh, (laughs) um, So yeah, my passions did change, but it changed slightly and it changed because I didn't have information. So, but, but it's changed back now. My passion is back. <laughs> Talking to my friends helped a
0: lot. Glad <laughs> well, I can't help. Uh, and if you all haven't figured out, uh, Dr. Faison and I have actually known each other since the mid-90s. So we go way, way back. Um, and if you could just kind of Look, the, the central theme of the questions that I have chosen for this series, and this is a periodic series with several people who are either professional educators or people who uh, have spent a lot of time just thinking about education. Uh, we've had Dr. Philip Williams. He was the first guest this year. Uh, we did a two-part series with him. Uh, more recently, we've done a two-part series with Dr. Wayne Frazier, who is um, a member of the Richmond County School Board and retired educator himself. And now we've got Dr. Faison to also continue on this thing. I've called each of them, you know, our, our kids failing school or our schools failing kids. And they'll just be parts one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, and until we have all those kids. Because I really want us to have some real discussion about. The status of public education. So if I pose that question to you, what does Dr. Jewel Fazar think?
1: Oh wow. Uh, I can unequivocally say that your question is like asking which came first, the chicken or the egg. <laughs> uh, who is failing whom is really not a question that I could address right this minute. However, I'd like to seed you with why. Um, and why our children are failing. And maybe God will give us during the share or somewhere in the future, what we can do about it uh, at this stage of the game. Uh, I really believe that our children are failing, not failing schools, uh, but our children are failing because of the systematic ineptitude of American democracy to do three things that all of us were taught to do um, in kindergarten. And at least by first grade, we knew how to do them. And number one is to tell the truth. Number two is to share. And number three was to play fair. Those three things form the foundation or basis of the problems that I see we have in education in this country. Uh, now that I'm, I'm not naive enough to uh, try to tell you that there are not other impending factors. You know that uh, other people may talk about, you know, parents and the society and social media and all of those things. I know those things impact our children, um, but perhaps the largest factor affecting the school success or failure of children in American schools. Uh, and in a minute I'll talk particularly about Georgia schools, is indeed poverty. But I submit to you that poverty is not a culture, as one of your guests stated. Poverty is at best a circumstance or a situation manufactured and imposed upon children by people in power who use lies, greed, and manipulation to stratify and maintain the oppressive existence of poverty for the purpose of their own gain and their own power. Now, I know I said a lot right there, and I'll try to break it down. Public schools are doing right now exactly what they were designed to do from their inception in 1837. Prior to the 6970 desegregation of American schools, uh, people like Dr. E.B. Du Bois warned us that if we persisted in the integration model, that was the result of Brown versus Board of Education, because school boards were not fulfilling even the intent of that legislation. He told us precisely what would happen to the souls, the mind, the will, the emotions, and the imagination of black children in 25 to 50 years. And unfortunately, uh, public education has never been set up for all children to learn. Um, by those early fathers, whether you give credit to Horace Mann or Lord Cawley or whoever they credit for starting public schools uh, in America, public schools are doing exactly what they were designed to do. Uh, they were never inclusive of all children. In particular, they were started for white children. And while many may harp on the enmity of that, I beg to differ. Um, that's fine that public schools as we know them today. started for whites only. White children by and large succeed in them today. I'm certainly not one to advocate that I wanted non-blacks to fail. Black educators would never devise or support such a nefarious notion uh, to develop schools that would knowingly and intentionally hold a group of children or people back. However, as I stated previously, in order to foundationally understand why our children, and in particular, Why black children are failing? It's because we adults, education leaders, legislators, and many educators have found it difficult to tell the truth, share, and play fair. See, to tell the truth is little known about um, early engagement of blacks in literacy development among enslaved people. We are told that. Uh, blacks were just ignorant in slavery and, uh, and coming out of slavery. Uh, when I learned about the literacy societies that were started largely among northern Blacks and in early as 1828, it was not in my history of American education course. I took American education uh, at George State. I took American education at Emory. And uh, little to nothing was mentioned about black schools other than the discriminatory and inferior nature of those schools. They were bad schools. Nevertheless, uh, people like Goldie Muhammad in her book, Cultivating Genius, documents where blacks in as early as 1827 gave speeches retorting their belief that rather than counter multiple attacks of oppression With violence, and this is doing enslavement now, Blacks would use their minds and pens as weapons to battle injustice. They say things like, as we cultivate our intellectual faculties, we shall strengthen our reasoning powers. So, I mean, Black people have always risen Uh, and had their own ways of knowing and being and educating their children. Black teachers in in 1832, in a newspaper called The Liberator, were charged to cultivate their own genius because mediocrity was unacceptable in Black spaces. So as a side note, when I learned about the wide use of reading rooms and these literary societies of the early 1800s that were used to cultivate intellectual capacity among black people, where I sat prior to high school with my mother, who became one of the first acquisition, well, she was the first acquisition librarian for the Atlanta University Center's Woodruff Library. But prior to that, when I was a little girl, she was a library assistant in the Morehouse Reading room. These reading rooms were started in the early 1800s prior to Morehouse even being founded. It was in those spaces that I, as a little girl, observed discussions and debates of all kinds uh, on all kinds of topics that Black intellectuals engaged in. I didn't know what I was looking at then, and I certainly didn't know the history behind those uh, literary societies, but I mean, it, it's it's just amazing. We didn't know and we don't know and that history is not told. So we think that we didn't have um, intellectuals or we didn't have, or there were just one or two but this was a way of living for our people. So my point here is that many of us just don't know this history about the widespread push for literacy among Black people. So first of all, we have to be willing to tell the truth. As a morsel to wit the appetite of your listeners, now let's tell the truth about public education here in Georgia. Mind you, as a consultant that serves public schools, I don't want to make anybody feel bad but I'm a graduate of Emory University with a master's and a PhD. Just before I graduated from Emory, Emory hired a black faculty historian. Uh, I took American education and I taught the history of American education at Emory as a graduate teaching assistant, but I never learned what Dr. Vanessa Siddle Walker, who is phenomenal in discussing how we got the kind of failure, Ms. Jackson, that we see today, especially among and particularly among Blacks in Georgia. But she's been able to document and show that the same thing happened across all of the Southern states and touched on some of the Northern states too. So to be honest, the widespread failure that we see across this nation among people who live in poverty and blacks in particular was systematically wrought. If in fact, American education is a part of democracy as a grand experiment, then without the supernatural intervention of the Holy Spirit, uh, I think we're in a lot of trouble. Dr. Siddle Walker's work involved uh, presenting the life's work of a man by the name of Dr. Horace Mann, Every educator, especially every Black educator in the state of Georgia needs to know about that work. He was the executive director of the Black Educators Professional Organization here in Georgia. The National Teachers and Educators Association, NTNEA, almost sounds like NEA, but they're not the same organizations. During integration, NTNEA had to be subsumed or had to quote unquote integrate into NEA by law. You see, she presents the history complete with referenced artifacts that exist today, still hidden though, because it's not politically correct to tell the truth about how integration sparked after Brown versus Board of Education caused whites to not integrate. Now I choose to spend the last minutes uh, of this interview encouraging your listeners, especially black educators or parents whose children are not doing well in today's public schools and even in college to read The Lost Education of Horace Tate, uncovering heroes who fought for justice in schools. Read and find out why in my segregated elementary school, this this really caused me to think, Janice, uh, why in Atlanta, caused um, in my segregated elementary school and under the tutelage of, and I must call their names because although some of them are ancestors, some of them still are alive today. Why Mr. Samuel Baycoat and Mr. who is now Dr. Raymond Harris and Ms. Sylvia Jones and Mr. Bryce, and Mr. Phillips and uh, Mrs. Di, now Dr. Di, she's an ancestor, uh, Ms. Hazel Brown and Ms. Jacobs, Ms. Bolton, and even Ms. Ruby Mims-Lucas, and for sure, Mr. or now Dr. William G. Coleman, who is perhaps one of the greatest scientists to ever live. Why were we in fifth and sixth grade converting Fahrenheit to centigrade? Why were we balancing chemical equations, which is really a part of like the sixth, to eighth grade um, curriculum nowadays? Why in my mother's day In her segregated school, she was 87 when she died, she'd be 90, uh, 92 now. Um, Why at EA Ware Elementary School, which still stands I think today, and David T. Howard Junior High School and Booker T. Washington High School, why did every black child take Latin in seventh grade? And by the time my son, who went to Grady High School, which is another Atlanta public school, white school uh, and was a part of the journalism magnet, why did he take Latin as a special magnet school student? If you can see the, the education, the curriculum of our segregated black schools was highly superior. Why in the face of integration were Black teachers fired, Black principals fired, Black children bust, didn't go the other way. So I, I want to encourage people to read and find out the organized pedagogy that Black educators across all the Southern states used to inspire Black children to achieve and achieve they did do. Read to find out when black folk could not vote, how could they have taught civics in such a way that we have a Colin Powell and some of the other greats that were in segregated schools in the South in a democracy that they really did not participate in. Read to find out how an in integration, um, the wholesale terminations happened, the inspiration and the warm demanda that was a part of the regular pedagogy in every Black school throughout the South. People talked about helping children to reach their highest potential. That language was still very much a part of me when I was in research and evaluation in 1990. That was a part of the the training of Black educators, but how all of that was lost. Uh, I was among the first in my neighborhood to be sent to uh, the white school. As a matter of fact, the year was 1969, 70, uh, that I went to eighth grade. And now I look back and I realize that they cherry picked because everyone else on my street uh, went to Murphy High School, the black school. But that year they were sending eighth and ninth graders to the white school. So they picked uh, myself and one of my close friends now, DeKalb County resident um, who lived on the next street over, everybody else went to Murphy, but we were picked to go to Bass because we were kind of the smart children. But at Bass High School was the first time where I recognized that during the morning announcements, our principal would get on the intercom and call the Negro students, uh, because that was better than saying to him Negro or the using the N word. Uh, The school where I was advised by the counselor to go uh, and take up a trade in Atlanta Public, uh, excuse me, Atlanta Area Technical School. Now I have a PhD from Emory University, but they advised me to go to Atlanta Area Technical School. So I want people to go out there and her name again is Dr. Vanessa Siddle Walker and all of these things that I'm talking about happened in Georgia. Uh, my cousin, who uh, is a tremendous educator, retired educator, 88, I think, 87 or 88 years old now, talked to me about the NE and uh, the NA and E um, professional organization and how that they had these networks that made sure that. Black folk were meeting uh, some 8,000 strong throughout the year to make sure that the Black principals would uh, have the information and the curriculum to teach Black children to keep them inspired. And it worked. Special education children, you didn't know that they were special ed. Everybody learned because Black teachers knew how. To make that happen, so um, I'm in. I I want to use this time to encourage people to go out and read Dr. Vanessa Siddle Walker, and that's S-I-D-D-L-E-W-A-L-K-E-R and look at what happened in Georgia public schools. So it's not by accident that we see the amount of failure that we see today. We were warned that it would happen, and indeed, it's not self. Fulfilling prophecy, it was
0: manufactured. So um, that's my spiel. And as you say that, that you you said so many things that struck a nerve with me. Um, and I'm I'm gonna just kind of run down a list, and and I think that can create a lot more uh, conversation here. Um, one is. When you talked about the lack of honesty, Mm -hmm. um, Dr. Frazier, who's a school board member here in Augusta, Richmond County, um, said that the main theme of my conversations with him was political correctness has killed Mm -hmm. the quality of education. Mm -hmm. So you all are definitely on the same page with that. As you talked, next thing that struck me was that, as you said, that the... um, Uh, you talked about the history of African-Americans and the quest for knowledge Mm -hmm. uh, going back 200 years Mm -hmm. almost. Mm -hmm. Um, That just, I mean, it's, it's wonderful, but it is so counter to the notion that we hear now. I I can't Mm -hmm. remember when it started. I want to say it was sometime in the late eighties, early nineties, maybe when, uh, African-American children who spoke well mm-hmm. were told things like, oh, you trying to sound white. Mm-hmm. 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 And that is just so counter to who we were and where we came from. Exactly. Going back into the 1800s, um, you also spoke about the falsity of integration. Yeah, I will call it that. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was something that Dr. Frazier and I also hit on. So Definitely some common themes are emerging here. Some disturbing things are emerging here.
1: Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. And, but can I say, can I say,
1: can I say that what talking uh, with you that, that particular Saturday morning and then crying out to the Lord and just asking God, okay, God, show me what to do. What we've gotta do and what I I think I wanna spend the rest of my life doing is Sankofa, going back to fetch what we've lost. Because I don't believe that it's too late. I can't believe that it's too late because I actually believe that there is something about black folk that make us yield in our spirit man to truth when it's told properly and when it's experienced properly. So I'm going to start in the little area where I am. I have an opportunity to do some things with some people at an alternative school. And it is amazing how many other teachers, not just Black teachers, but that understand what I'm talking about and want to uh, be that warm demander, want to actually be the kind of provocateurs for education that we had way back then. They just want to an opportunity to do it and the know-how. And so I want to be a part of uh, that kind of thing. Uh, and we'll let you know how we're coming out, because um, I think we're going to have that opportunity.
0: Did you use the term warm demander? Yeah,
1: yeah, those those were those teachers that uh, that's it's a education term that um, those it describes black teachers that uh, were like mamas in the schools. They were very demanding. Your mother was one of those. You can oh yeah for for certain. That, that's exactly what I thought
0: when I heard that. I said, oh, this sounds like a perfect description of my mother.
1: that we had them in our churches, we had them in our communities. Uh, And I believe that that's some of what was lost when we had integration because what we did is in Georgia, we wholesale wiped out those great teachers. They lost their jobs, Janice. They actually, there is documentation and when you see the numbers, it's astounding. What we're experiencing now was not only manufactured, but it was prophesied because our people weren't stupid. We were able to see that it wasn't that it wasn't happening the way whoever the proverbial they were said that it would. And the intent of Brown versus Board of Education was not at all what we've experienced. And we have to, at some point, go back and make that right Uh, that's my, that's my African Sankofa term, (laughs) uh, going back to fetch it. We've got to fetch that information and that understanding of who Black children, uh, what Black children needed and who Black teachers were. Again, not saying that you have to have Black teachers, but it was something that those Black teachers did. And uh, Dr. Walker does an absolute wonderful job. Uh, and, and, and little did I know how close I had it right at hand. You know, sometimes we forget, we get in, inundated with everything else that's going going on in our lives. And we forget, hey, my sister is right there. And my daughter, your uh, daughter's god sister, uh, had, had her as a major professor. And so they, it's, it's just amazing that we have the information, it's just a matter of going and fetching it. And that's what I plan to spend my life doing.
0: You use the term Sankofa. Yes. And I, I just want to make sure, because I've heard people use it. Um, and I've never really looked up what it meant. Okay. Sankofa, return and take, represents the importance of learning from the past to build a future.
1: Yes. Yes.
0: yes. Sankofa is a word in Ghana yes to it's retrieve and also uh refers to the symbol represented either with a stylized heart mm-hmm. shape or a bird with its head turned backwards while its feet face forward carrying a precious egg in its mouth oh wow so um that's going to be our word for the day sancofa
1: <laughs> absolutely and in anybody who's interested in a Sankofa experience i at Advise them to go to www.aschoolforchildren.com and come and travel with us to Ghana because that's exactly what we try to make sure that people
0: uh, get when they go over. And tell, tell me a little bit more about the Ghana trip. I checked out your website a few weeks ago, but just just explore that.
1: Well, uh, it's the the whole purpose again is out of just what we're discussing. Uh, making sure that people have an opportunity to see for themselves and experience for themselves not just what the eyes can see, but what the spirit, because Black people have always been guided by and large by our spirit man. I'm not using it in a religious way. I'm using it in the in a DNA way that that's that's a part of our DNA. Experience the the understanding and the knowledge of who we really are as a people. And so uh, the in 2009, I went to Ghana for the first time. And uh, when I tell you, I, it's something about breathing the air and stepping on the ground that was very transformative for me. I spent a lot of time reading while I was there because our host took us to the bookstore. And of course, I saw books that I'd never seen in America or never heard about in my, even in my graduate studies uh, courses. So I would ride from place to place reading and understanding what happened here. And then when I was able to put it all in context and see the gleam in our children's eyes, I'd like to tell this story and it's gonna be quick because I know we're out of time. But when we were going down to Slave River in 2009, they had told us to bring candy and treats for the children so that we could give it, because the children would beg, that's what they told us. Well, we were walking down to Slave River and out of the bush, came this little boy had to be about seven years old and he looked up at me and I immediately went in my pocket and got that candy so that I could offer him that candy and he says no no you got a writing tool he wanted a pencil and the teacher didn't have a pencil I was so upset and so I always wanted to go back and I said if I ever go back I was gonna make sure that I had lots of pencils. And of course, in 2012, when I had the aneurysm, uh, I was unable to go uh, that year. And I was able to recently go back and visit a school, which we are now uh, gonna partner with and bring people over to uh, support that school um, and take pencils and erasers, et cetera. But it's it's a wonderful opportunity to just go and see and experience for yourself the royalty and the beauty, the intelligence of black people.
0: We might need to end on that note, the royalty, beauty and intelligence of black people. Of black
1: people, Because we're, we're so cloaked here. And for some reason, the news only picks up the negative. And you do that for enough years You begin to think um, that it doesn't exist. And it's just not true.
0: Okay. Dr. Jewel Faison, you have been a delightful guest on local matters. I do want you to share with our audience again your website. Um, web address so they can learn more about you and the very important work that you do in the field of education. So please uh, show them how they can get to that.
1: Okay. Uh, There are two websites actually, and we're working on the second one to update it. The first one is uh, CCI, the letters cci.guru. That's the one we're working on to update and hopefully by the end of this week it will be updated with some of the work that we're doing now. But the one about the travel to Ghana is www.aschoolforchildren.com and the reason why I kept the um, a schoolforchildren.com website is because it's a nonprofit, and we were already engaged in uh, global education in our little school. Uh, We were connected with a school over in Sierra Leone at the time that I had the uh, brain aneurysm and definitely connected to uh, uh, people in Ghana, not a school in Ghana as we are now, but people in Ghana. And we wanted to make sure that we um, kept that consistent, um, because it's just, it was my baby, a school for children. And it's always a, a pleasure, a pleasurable memory. And anybody who wants to get in touch with me, can I give them my number?
0: Most definitely.
1: It is on both websites, but it's 229-869-3116. We do some resilience training to kind of help people go back and fetch it uh, because uh, it it's, it's um, enlightening And it's refreshing to know the truth. The truth really does make us free.
0: Again, thank you so much for being an official part of the Local Matters family. Be blessed with the work that you're conducting on behalf of our children.
1: Thank you so much.
0: Local Matters family, please join us next week when my guest will be Ms. Felina Martin to talk about her new book. I close with my favorite Bible verse from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. This show is designed to contribute to each of those, giving you the power that comes with knowledge, demonstrating love for your local community, and offering you wisdom for decision making so that you possess a sound mind when it comes to these topics. Please tune in next Wednesday at 1.30 p.m. here on WKZK, 1600 AM, 103.7 FM, and WKZK.net, because local matters.